Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Top 5 at 5 once again. I, I love doing this because I think that there's so much interest in, in listening to uh, veterans on Wall Street and Bay Street in terms of how they're thinking about the markets and also importantly, um, providing you with some of their top picks. That's uh, the top five at five. That's the whole point. Uh, today we have Darren Sissons. He's a partner at Campbelly and Ross Investment Management. Um, Darren, great to, to be with you today. Uh, thanks again for your time um, and, uh, and, and good to always have these discussions. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Darren, I want to first get your, your kind of quick top-down view, even though this is so stock-focused, This the point of this conversation, mm. but given all the volatility and uncertainty surrounding inflation and the Ukraine-Russia war, um, what, what is your top-down view these days? Yeah, so, well, the war itself, I think there are two narratives in the market. Uh, the one predominant narrative in Europe tends to be the, the, the Ukraine conflict, and I think that's a separate animal. And then we have obviously the interest rate story, which is really a, a regime change. And I think one narrative will ultimately come to dominate and we'll, we'll see that. But for now, well, let's run with the narrative that's the interest rates because uh, you know we're in North America and that's the sort of the story here. Uh, so I do think we're having a regime change where previously it was uh, very loose uh, liquidity conditions, uh, obviously excess liquidity caused bubbles in, uh, in housing. Uh, cause bubbles in a lot of the equity sectors, particularly very high growth sectors. Uh, Kathy Woods uh, obviously uh, saw a lot of run up in her names. But as, as that um, dynamic has changed with interest rates, and especially like, for example, Canada raised uh, interest rates 50 basis points last night. The Kiwis did the same thing, but 12 hours earlier because they're a day ahead. Um, and then we've also seen, um, uh, well, we have expectations the US is going to do 50 uh, basis points. So really we're, look, we're moving towards a, a situation where uh, money is going to start costing, you know, reasonable levels and the expectation it's going to cost even more moving forward. So that's going to change uh, in many ways the, uh, what's happening in the market. It's going to cause a rotation in, in, into different segments. Uh, and it also creates a very large scope for policy errors. If, for example, the Federal Reserve's um, and the other central banks could, uh, push too far and then are required to correct. And I think the, the issue is going to be is really the the overall level of debt in the system, be it government, be it corporate, and be it personal. Uh, if interest rates are raised too quickly, uh, it will cause um, a situation where bankers will be given the keys to various houses, properties, and corporations. So the central banks are really in a difficult situation, but they do have to start managing inflation. And that's really the underlying issue. Uh, do, do you fear or are you positioning for a recession? Um, I, well, I, I do think we're going to have some form of slowdown. Uh, I think that uh, obviously Europe's slowing down uh, because of the conflict. You've got China largely, well, to some degree offline because of the zero COVID policy. And then you've got um, high energy prices. That's somewhat of a toxic group. So I do think we're going to see slower growth, whether it falls into a technical recession, which is what two, con two consecutive quarters back to back, uh, that, that will in many cases depend on the individual countries. But 
I would definitely wouldn't rule one out, but I don't think the base case is 2022. I think it's more 2023, later 2023. And definitely if uh, central banks get the, uh, get the, the, uh, the calibration of interest rate movements wrong. If they do, we could go in, 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 into a, a recession, obviously, a lot quicker. Okay. Um, with that said, um, what are your top picks these days? And I know you have a real focus on energy. Why don't we start there? Actually, I wouldn't say we have a huge focus on energy. We do have we do have energy in the program, um, and you know I, I think that the energy trade is largely tied, uh, rightly or wrongly, to the uh, to the Ukraine conflict. Uh, Russia is obviously a big supplier, and there's real question marks around their continuing supply. So, really, with that in mind, uh, you know, with three names that we would suggest, I think, and they've had quite good runs, would be Equinor, obviously um, out of the Nordic region. Uh, we've owned that for a long period of time. Um, so obviously the national champion as well, the former Statoil, um, Shell, and, uh, and Suncor here in Canada uh, for different reasons. I think Equina is going to benefit from really the concerns around Russian um, oil and gas going offline. Uh, and obviously that's created uh, higher energy prices. Shell, I think, is somewhat of a composite story. Um, it's uh, obviously been the forefront of ESG movement, so it's paid down debt. It's moved into, into the renewable space and is spending a significant amount of capital moving into the renewables area. And obviously with a good balance sheet, um, much, much better than it was going into COVID. Um, and obviously uh, the scope for buybacks and, and dividend increases. So that's an interesting story. Um, and then really locally here for Canadians, uh, Suncor, it's just a smaller scale um, uh, shell. They've got some renewable projects going on. They've obviously got a big oil base out in the uh, Western Canada. So I think that's kind of how we're thinking about it. But I would suggest people perhaps start thinking about de-risking. If you've made um, good money, significant gains on your energy, you might want to take some profits here. Uh, you know, you don't want to ride these trades up and down because if there's if there is a um, definitely a conclusion in in, uh, in Ukraine, then oil is going to fall and the energy names will fall. So just buy beware on the on the energy exposure. With, with respect to energy, I mean the the long term bullish secular uh, argument, which mm -hmm. doesn't sound like you are in that camp, is is the fact that we are and will be in a, in a bullish secular uh, move for energy because um, there hasn't been the development for the past 10 years that, you know, the CapEx and the money mm. that used to flow into the energy sector hasn't been there for 10 years. We don't have the supply. You can't just turn it on quickly. And there really is a supply crunch. And, you know, post uh, China shutting down because of COVID, um, just even mm -hmm. think about what the demand for oil will be when that happens. I would not discount anything you've said, and in fact, I think that's uh, that is really the underlying premise of why you buy, why you buy oil. I think the, the the I think you've got two points here. Number one is uh, which you've just stated the very rational point of view, which is there is a supply constraint. Very much ESG are pushing uh, mandates such as they sue World Dutch Shell, um, and then subsequently uh, decided to. Uh, stop the lawsuit after Royal Dutch Shell wanted to counter. Uh, you've got the Greta Thunberg effect. Um, how dare you? All of that routine has led to banks, for example, getting pressure of leaning into, for example, the Canadian oil patch and so forth. That is going to be a structural headwind. And I do think there is going to be some rethinking around that issue. Mm -hmm. There's also the issue in Europe, for example, which has, has much more dense populations and more of a, in a dense, dense landmass, the, the electrification of the grid is obviously uh, an opportunity, but that still has to, there's still not enough 
um, grid investment, there's still not enough generation capacity to offset the carbon loss. So definitely the underlying thematic is. But our view, rightly or wrongly, is that the transition to electrons for, trans for transportation is going to take a lot longer. And it will be a number of solutions. It will be hydrogen. Uh, so we have obviously exposure in the hydrogen space. Um, that's a different discussion. But so I do think it's going to be a composite mix. But I but I do think at these levels, the amount of cash flow that's coming off the debt, the debt structures, uh, which are very attractive, and the opportunity for buybacks and, and total shareholder returns makes some sense for energy moving forward. And I do think the transition away from carbon is going to take a lot longer than uh, than a lot of the environmentalists are expecting. And the, the other, perhaps the other unintended consequence is that if you start investing and pushing capital into the electron space, the Teslas and so forth, um, where's that generation gonna come from and at what cost? And, and that is really the unintended consequence that is not being fully fleshed out. Um, with respect to one of your names, uh, Equinar, I am, I'm not familiar with that company. Um, I mean, in, in terms of really having watched it for years, can you give us a little bit more granularity? And is it an ADR? Yeah, so so uh, so it was the former Statoil, um, which is the Norwegian. Uh, it's basically, it, to, to all intents and purposes, those who follow the markets will know that Norway has effectively the largest sovereign fund in the world. That, that company formed the premise of where all that capital came from. Uh, and over time, uh, obviously, the, the Norwegian government sold down and the company was previously named Statoil. They changed the name four or five years ago to Equinor. The Canadian, the, uh, the ADR ticker uh, is EQNR. Uh, and it's, um, it tends to be quite a good leverage play on oil. Uh, mm. And it's actually had quite a big move. In relative terms, Shell has not moved so much. Uh, I would say uh, Equinor is, a, is, a, is, a, is a definitely a super major, but uh, obviously uh, Shell is a behemoth. So it's, okay. uh, it's an order of magnitude larger, but still um, both companies would uh, be substantially bigger than Suncor, for example. Right, okay, good good to hear about it. Um, let's take a look at another name that you're bringing us today and uh, it's a, within the healthcare space, J&J, &J, Johnson & Johnson. Yeah, so I do think with the transition uh, to higher interest rates, the cost of capital is going to, going to increase. And then ultimately one of the dynamics that we heard in the markets many, many times was Tina, there is nothing else. So as we start to see high costs of capital, um, there is going to be an opportunity to start thinking about defensive opportunities and, and sort of defensive segments. And if you look at uh, a lot of uh, healthcare, there's been a, a very strong inflection uh, in the last in the last few months on, on healthcare. So I think that is going to be a theme that's going to carry forward, particularly if interest rates continue to rise. Uh, moving into the sort of J&J &J itself, J&J, &J, like a number of the big farmers, is spinning off their consumer business. And what they're going to do is they're then going to start focusing more directly on the pharma and the medical devices business. Oh. So there's an opportunity for a one-time special dividend or, for example, similar to what um, the AT&T Warner Brothers spin out, you might get some shares. There'll, there'll be some combination that'll ultimately be fleshed out. But you'll get, you'll get, a, you'll get a stub position of something or you'll get a special dividend from the consumer business and you'll get a, the residual will be a faster growing piece focused on obviously higher growth through the pharmaceutical and the medical devices. So I, I you know, I, I do like sort of these catalyst stories and I think this is one that's going to be quite interesting moving forward. What was the company's rationale for, for spinning out the consumer business? One of the reasons why I've kind of always liked J&J &J mm -hmm. in, in many ways is because I actually liked, um, 
the medical side of the business with the consumer side because it kind of acts as a bit of a bounce for difficult times in the market. And that's, again, that's a great story. And if you typically, if you look at the sort of the dividend or aristocrat element of J&J, that was obviously some of the underlying premise, stability of earnings, growth earnings, you know, you had a portfolio diversification and, you know, if one engine wasn't firing, it would, 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 it would obviously move yeah. forward. But what, what effectively has happened is they, more management, see more opportunity in the pharma side of the business. And obviously, they're, they're relatively recently, they made a large acquisition and it moved the needle of the underlying level of pharma exposure north. And I was always of the view that there was either going to be another medical device uh, acquisition or there was going to be another consumer acquisition. But in the current environment, uh, in markets go through cycles where non-core assets get shared, management's focus in different areas. In this particular environment, the thematic across a lot of big farmers to shared non-core businesses. For example, Sando, uh, uh, Novartis is looking to sell off the Sandos generic business. You've got mm-hmm. Sanofi's looking to, to uh, shed some assets, uh, Roche across, and they're looking to sort of uh, perhaps think about the um, the portfolio that they own in an, uh, in an EVA analysis type point of view. What's the cost of capital underlying and owning those businesses? What's the economic return? And can I get higher returns by pushing capital into other areas and selling off assets that don't work? So classic portfolio uh, management is really one of the underlying themes that I would think uh, is really occurring, not just at J&J, but across the industry. Interesting. Okay. Um, let's take a look at your next top pick. Um, is it in the utility space? Yeah. So and it's Algonquin Power. Uh, this is a Canadian centric name. Um, but I do think the broader uh, renewable space is interesting. And I, I, I really, the, the catalyst here, uh, again, will be growing dividends and growing earnings, but it's really tied to a cost of capital concept. So Many, many of the regulated assets uh, in the renewable space particularly have earnings tied to uh, the cost of capital. And so when the cost of capital rises, uh, that will then uh, enable a, a, um, a positive uh, confirmation from the rate cases when they ask for, high, for higher returns. For example, our cost of business is going up by 5%. We, want it, we need to get a 5% return. So I think that's gonna be one element. So that will raise returns. But perhaps more, even more importantly, at a higher cost of capital, there will be some projects that were previously uneconomic will then be economic and could then be um, uh, could then be uh, economic to pursue and obviously to grow the the the, uh, the universe of addressable products. So you've got an opportunity to re-rate the profitability from underlying assets, and you've also got the opportunity for a larger universe of of, of, of uh, opportunities, a greater skill set, um, a greater opportunity set. So I think those are the types of things that we're thinking about in terms of renewables. But I would say that concept of higher cost of capital will trigger across um, uh, many of the uh, regulated utilities. And so it's not ju- that's not just a Canadian-centric story. So what does that mean then? So for example, let's say, for example, when you think about when you break down the cost of capital, um, you'd, you'd have a debt cost, you'd have an equity cost. And it's an effectively the inverse relationship to what's happening to, to tech. For example, uh, as interest rates rise, the, uh, you have to have a high, higher return to justify an existing multiple. If you've got a lower multiple and uh, the cost rises, um, then you're going to get higher earnings. So they should talk to you know, higher opportunity uh, and just in terms of multiples, but also it should lead to higher revenue growth. Because when, if you have a regulated asset and uh, 
you, when you uh, when when, the, when management go to ask for the, for a higher return on the assets, they will go to the regulators and say, okay, well, you know, historically we were earning three percent on this asset. Uh, our cost of capital was two percent, for example. Um, so the net spread was one. If the cost of capital rises to four percent, then they should be allowed to maintain their their profit delta, and they'll argue for more. And so, the, and if interest rates move up significantly, that will increase those costs. Got it. Um, and, and how has the stock performed? Um, you know, I had a technical analyst on a couple of weeks ago, and he was really highlighting the utilities um, to us. How, how has Algonquin performed? So I think it, I think the answer is, depends on how long you've held it. So sure. mm-hmm. what, what happened was, uh, and I think the, the inverse of what I'm telling you happened last year when, it, uh, when there was an expectation that interest rates were going to rise, and they did it. Uh, and perhaps the best example is look at a company like Orsted, which is the global leader in offshore wind. Uh, their chart went meaningfully down. And uh, I think the, the argument now would be that in a rising interest rate environment where people are going to be looking for income as opposed to a growth return, where will they go to? They'll go to companies that have the ability to grow their earning streams. But in full disclosure, utilities are not uh, major growth engines. They are stability and they yeah. also tend to be uh, somewhat growth. So if you can combine a, a gr- underlying growth thematic uh, with a growing dividend, that's probably an attractive opportunity for certain types of investors. Absolutely. All right, Darren, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and your ideas today. We've got energy, we've got a Falcon Power and J&J. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Stay you safe. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye.